0: All right, it's uh, great to be with all of you again, uh, to share the word with you. I also want you to realize how sneakily Pastor Ian lowered the mic as if I'm shorter than him. (laughs) I think before the end of the service, we need to prove once and for all who's taller between him and I. Um, But uh, as I had mentioned, it's really great to have the opportunity to share the word with you again I really do appreciate this time that you've given unto me, and I hope that and pray that this would be edifying and uh, to all of you and be strengthening in the Lord for us all. So I would like us today to consider a portion of Scripture from the book of Matthew, chapter 25, verse 14 to verse 30. Um, and I know that for the past few weeks, Pastor Ian has been preaching uh, sort of a topical series on some of the ultimate realities that we believe as Christians. Uh, he spoke about sort of the reality of hell, the reality of heaven, the reality of, 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 of judgment, and the reality of the coming of Christ. And in light of all of these realities, after we have listened to all of these and we know that these are true, the, the question begins to be, how do we live in light of all of these realities? How do we therefore govern the rest of our lives because of these truths. You see, the one thing that I have sort of seen and learned within the scriptures but also within life is that in order for us to truly understand what we believe or what you hold to be true as a person, we simply have to look at the way you live. How we live is a true depiction of what we truly believe, right? And this is, goes straight from every small decision that we make for instance, you came in today, you believed that the chair that you were about to sit on was sturdy, so you just sat down. You didn't inspect it, you had no doubt, so you just, you, know, you just sat down. Because you believed in the fact that the chair would be sturdy and would be able to hold up your weight. Similarly, in terms of how you came dressed today, you looked out and you are like, okay, I believe that outside it would be cooler, and so I'm going to wear something short, or it would be colder, so I'll wear something long. And if you believed that it would be raining, you would have taken an umbrella, Right? But all of these decisions that you make and all of these decisions that you ultimately take are a reflection of what you ultimately believe about that particular aspect or that particular situation. And it is for this reason why I honestly don't believe atheists when they say they're atheists. Because if they were to live out their life as atheists, they would not respect human life. Right? Because to them, life has no purpose. It has no meaning. Whether you're a human being or you're a dog, there's no intrinsic value that a human being has over a dog or a rock. It's all just a clump of cells. But how they live their lives is not a reflection of that. They can step on a rock and they won't feel anything, but they step on a human and they apologize. Right? And that's a reflection to say that although they might say they're atheists, although they might say that they don't believe in God, but there's a truth of God that they are suppressing in their lives. Because they respect human life and the image of God that is written in the in the, in, the, in the in the identity of every human being. So how, if we were to really inspect or to try to understand what we really believe, we would need to look at how we live. And basically, based on that, the question then becomes, if we really believe these ultimate realities, if we really believe that there is a heaven and a hell if we really believe that there is judgment there is come that is coming, if we really believe that Christ will one day come again to judge the living and the dead, if we believe in all of these truths and all of these ultimate realities, how then should we live in response to that? What are those signs and tells of our lives that we should be looking unto that give a picture to say that we truly believe those things? Because it is not enough for us to sit under the preaching of God's word to hear these things, to proclaim that we believe them, but for our lives not to show that we indeed believe in these realities. And so I want to challenge us as we look at this portion of Scripture to really be be in a time, a frame of mind, of reflection, to ask ourselves if we really believe in these ultimate realities, if we really believe that there is a heaven and hell, if we really believe that Christ will come again, and if we really believe that there will be a judgment one day, that we will all have to sit and give an account to the Lord. So as we read this, let us reflect on those truths and reflect to truly inspect if we are living in light of all of these realities. So with that introduction, let's look at Matthew chapter 25, and we'll take it from verse 14. Matthew 25, taking it from verse 14. For it, and the word it here is the kingdom of God, especially if you go back to to verse 1, you'll see that he's speaking about the kingdom of God. For it will be like a man going on a long journey, who called his servants and trusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each one according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he who had five, and he he gained, he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of these servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. of your master, he also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, "Master, I knew you; you I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you have not scattered. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours." But his master, ans- master answered him, "You wicked and slothful servant!" and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth this is the reading of god's word so we are encountered here with a parable that depicts in in, in a short summary sort of the history of humanity but to some degree the future that is to come and you, if, if, I'm not sure if you were paying attention, but within this, you have also a couple of snippets or some wordings that point towards some of the ultimate realities that we have been considering. For instance, in verse 19, you have the, the, the Jesus saying, now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So here here is Jesus Christ speaking about his second coming and ultimately also speaking about the reality of the ultimate judgment where all men will sit before him and stand before him and give an account of everything that they have done in the body. Right? So we see here that there is that ultimate reality. If you go down a little more, a little more, you will see, for instance, in verse 21, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. You have there a depiction of God or Christ after the judgment ushering the faithful servants into a heavenly sort of dwelling and in a heavenly place. And then you have in verse 30, and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we know that this description that Jesus is talking about here when he speaks about outer darkness and, and the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, he's speaking of the slothful servant being cast into hell, right? So you have in here some of these ultimate realities that we have been considering in few, in, in, in over the past few weeks, and now we need to think about how do, ought we to live in this, in this time, and this this series of, of of parables that Jesus Christ speaks of, I mean, there are about three or four of them, are all a picture or a depiction of the last days and the last judgment from different angles you know you have the ten virgins you have the parable of the talents you have the parable of the goats and the sheep that comes immediately after this and throughout all of this jesus is giving us different perspectives of how we ought to live in accordance to these ultimate realities but for the sake of time we will consider just this one now i want to consider uh what we will be speaking about here in four different topics Number one, how we live in light of these ultimate realities, the first thing is that we ought to be productive. We have to be productive. The second one that we are going to consider is that we have to be patient. The third one that we are going to consider is that we have to be filled with joyful expectation. And the fourth one that we, have to, that we are going to consider is that we have to be filled with fearful consideration. So let's look into it from verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Before we go any further, I want us to consider the wording here. That this is Jesus basically speaking about him as he ascends back into heaven and as he delivers all the gifts that he has to men. And the Bible here says that he delivers whose property? His property. That he delivers his property to people. He delivers his property towards his people. He delivers his property to the people that he is speaking to. The Bible here says to one he gives five, to one, to another he gives two talents, to another he gave one, each in accordance to their own ability. Then he went away. Now if you think about it, there has been a lot of thought and debate around what these talents represent, right? These talents represent actual talent as we would think about it, whether some people can sing, dance, jump high, run fast, whatever the talent can be, some of us just have beautiful smiles, we're not really sure how to use them. Or are these? do they represent something else that we should be considering? And I want to pose to you that these talents basically, if you think about them in relation to your life, they represent everything that you have. That everything that you have from your, your gifts and your talents, from your job, to your business, to your family, to all of these things, all of these things are property that the Lord has entrusted into your hands. If you think about your life, everything that you have, every accomplishment that you've had, every gift that you have, every opportunity to work or to study that you have, everything from from being a husband and having children to having your own family, all of these things are, are talents that the Lord has given into your hands, and the one thing that he stresses is that it is his property that he gives to you. So all the money that you have in your bank account, all the businesses that you may have, your career that you have your family that you have been able to, 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 to raise up, or your studies that you have the privilege of endeavoring unto. All of these things are things that God has given unto you. Now imagine, I want you to think for a second, imagine if we actually believed this. Imagine the amount of humility with which we would live if we looked at all that we had and said, I have, I have done nothing to deserve any of this, that if everything that I have, I have been given by God and by his grace. That yes, I have worked hard, yes, I have done all of this, but even the ability to work hard, even the wisdom to work hard, even the ability to know how to reap and to sow, all of that has been given unto me by God. There is nothing that we have that we have not received from him. And imagine how much humility we would have if we actually lived like this. Imagine how how we would be able to live so peaceably with each other, with no fight of one looking down on the other because he has more than the other with no fights of one considering himself to be higher than another because he sees his properties and his possessions to be more than his neighbor. But all of us humbly coming before God to say thank you for all that you have given unto us. So the Bible here starts by giving us this picture of saying that everything that we have has been entrusted to us by God. That he has given us of his possessions. And the word there to entrust also has the connotation of stewardship. So he has not given it unto us to own, but he has given it unto us to steward. So he's the given unto us not to do with it as we please, but he has given it unto us so that we can take care of it for him. You hear what I'm saying? So it is not that he has given it unto us and he says it's yours, do as you please with it. But he's saying, I am giving off to you of my great riches for you to steward over them, to look after that which I have given you. So I think that's the first thing that we need to consider as we consider how we ought to be productive, that the first part where we, where all of this needs to start is that the tools that we have been given in order to be productive have been given to us as a gift by God, and we ought to be humble and thankful to him for giving them to us. The second thing that I want us to consider is that in verse 15, to one he gave five, to another he gave two, to another he gave one, to each one according to his ability, then he went away. I want us to consider here that the Lord gives talents in accordance to his own wisdom and measure. That none of us have the same amount, none of us even have the same talents, none of us have the same. Some will be given the blessing of marriage, some will not. Some will be given the blessing of of, of, of working in, in, in big corporate, some will not. That That all of us have been given different things and different abilities, but all of us have been given something. Right? It might not be equal, but all of us have been given something. Right? And the lack of equality should not be a reason for us to hate one another, to fight over these things over one another or, or, or over each other, but it should be a reason for us to glorify God that he has given us something. That we ought to be grateful to him that he has given us something as opposed to coveting that which our brothers and our next-door neighbors have. But one thing that we ought to understand is God has given us all something. It might not be the same and it might not be to the same degree, but from his good pleasure and by his great wisdom, he has chosen to give what he has given to all of us. And it is all from him. And the Bible here then says that he went away. He left. Verse 16. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. I want you to see there again that he didn't hide his own money. He hid his master's money. The Bible here is emphasizing that he hid something that did not belong to him, something that he was supposed to steward over and use and be productive in, he hid. I want you to see something here, that the Bible here gives two, these three examples of three people, but ultimately they are put into two categories, right? These examples of three people or three sort of depictions or types of people, but ultimately they are put into two categories. The one category is the one who had five cat the, the ones who had five and two talents and the bible here that they went at once and traded them and the second category of person is the one who just dug a hole and put his talent and did absolutely nothing with it there are only two categories of people they are those who use their talents and there are those who don't now i want us to consider for a moment why if 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 this property that has been given to them is given to them or entrusted to them by their master for them to use and increase, and after all of that happens, the master will take back his money, why would they work it? Imagine I came to you and I said, hey, here's a million rand. I'm trusting you with it. I want you to work it. Put your heart, your sweat, and your tears into it. And afterwards, once you have gotten it and made it a billion I'm going to take it back and give you nothing. Why would you work that money? For what reason would you apply your life's effort towards working and putting in the effort and sweating so that I could receive the increase? Why, what reason would these talents, why, what reason would these three guys have to work Why didn't they all just dig up a hole and put the master's money in it and go away and live their own lives and find their own pleasure, find their own wealth and find their own increase as opposed to working tirelessly for money that they might not even get to enjoy? Why would they do that? The answer is simple. For the glory and the benefit of the master. Similarly to us, The Lord has entrusted us with talents. The Lord has entrusted us with gifts. The Lord has entrusted us with families, with opportunities to study, with businesses, with workspaces, and with all of these things that he has ultimately and freely given unto us. And he has entrusted this unto us as his own property that we will ultimately, at the end of the day, give back to him. And the reason why we want to give it back to him more is simply for his glory. We work and we apply ourselves. We sweat every day with the sweat of our brows. We work and we want to see increase in our gifts. We want to see increase in our families. We want to, as husbands, to see our wives grow in holiness and become more and more into the image of Christ. We want to raise up our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We want to see ourselves conducting our businesses and in our workspaces in holiness and in righteousness and getting a, a, a and having all of these things increase, not because. Ultimately, they will benefit us in some way, although they will in the temporal sense. But ultimately, we have to work hard because we are motivated by the need to see the name of Christ glorified. We want to increase. We want our families to resemble him. We want our churches to grow. We want our talents to be seen, whether it be in, in singing, in dancing, or in whatever things that we do. We want our businesses to grow in all of these things, being faithful to what the Lord has given unto us, ultimately so that we can glorify him. The motivation here for the increase of the talents is not the enjoyment of the servant, but the glory of the master. And I think this is what the Lord is trying to show us here. Because it is his money that they are working. It is his money that they put into the ground. But ultimately they are doing all of this so that ultimately when the master comes, they can say, Master, we have glorified you. And so even as you live in your life, as a husband, with your wife, with your children, why ought you to daily slave in teaching them the word of God? Why ought you to daily be on your knees in prayer, lifting them up before the face of God and praying for them? Or if you are at, at a workplace, it might not even be a good workplace. It might be a workplace that is filled with a lot of toxicity and there's a lot of things that are going on. Why should you go there and be faithful in all the duties that you have been given? Or you are working in business and everybody in the business that you're doing is doing crazy, shady things, corruption, left, right and center. Why should you remain faithful in those circumstances? Even if it is to the detriment of your own business or to your own happiness or to your own career. Why should you stay faithful in all of these circumstances? Simply to the increase and the glory of the master. This should be the driving reason why we do what we do. This should be the driving reason why when everybody else is being lazy at work, you continue to remain faithful to what you have been given. Because it is not to your boss ultimately that you will give account, but it is to God that you will stand and have to give an account. Why should you be faithful in your studies when everybody else, all the other students are having fun, all the other students don't care about the exams and the tests and everything that is about to happen? Why should you be faithful It's because these are talents that the Lord has given unto you that you have to work and sweat and produce forth a result to the glory of his name. Even if it adds nothing to you, we work ultimately to glorify him. And this is what drove the person with the five talents and the person with the two talents. They worked hard not because they believed somehow that what they received, they will receive more and more increase and they will receive everything to themselves, but they worked hard ultimately because they knew that one day they would have the privilege to return everything to God and they wanted to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. They ultimately wanted to glorify him. But there are two categories of people here. There are those who will hearing the word of god will use all these gifts will use all their talents will go to work and 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 do all of the things that they need to do faithfully to the glory of god they will put to work and start trading at once but there are also those who will sit down with their gifts who will look at all the responsibilities the gifts the talents and everything that the lord has given unto them and treat them as if they are nothing and continue to live a life simply of that is focused on self pleasure and self preservation and, and paying no mind to the glory of God. There are only two categories here, and I love this about the Bible that many times it only provides two categories there's the righteous and there's the wicked, there's nothing in between. there's the faithful servant, there's the unfaithful servant, there's nothing in between. There is light and there is darkness. There is nothing in between. There is heaven and there is hell. There is nothing in between. And we need to faithfully look at our lives and take stock and determine which of these two are we. Are we being faithful with everything that the Lord has given unto us? Are we at once going out and trading with all that we have been given? Or are we lazily digging up everything that the Lord has given unto us into a hole and closing our eyes and hoping for the best? There are only two categories. There's no middle ground. There's no gray area. There's no place where we can sit and, and sort of discuss maybe you're 51%, you're 495 and maybe you deserve to go in. No. There are only these two options. And we need to sit down and think of all the responsibilities that we have been given of all the giftings that we have been given, of all the opportunities that the Lord has so graciously blessed us with that we ought to be faithful in, in serving in the church, in serving the people of God, in serving everything. I mean, even being a member of a church is a talent that God has given unto you to work so that you can serve the members of the body that you belong to. Think about what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 when he speaks about the picture of a church as one body that has all of these ligaments and all of these ligaments working together so that it can ultimately grow up into the image of the head that is, with it, that is Christ. And it ultimately gets there. How? Because every part does what it is supposed to. To do every part uses the gifts, uses the functionality, uses the responsibilities that they have to serve in the church, and ultimately sees the growth and the development of the church. The growth and development of the church is not be, is not based on pastoria and in the deacons. It's based on all of us in here doing what God has called us to do and using the gifts that we have, so that we all grow and come to be and look like Christ. All of these are talents that have been given unto us that we should work for the glory of God. And there are only two categories. There are only two types of church members. There are those who lean in and work and serve the church, and there are those who lazily sit down and do nothing. There are only two types of husbands those who labor for their wives and their, and their children, praying for them, teaching them the word of God, raising them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord and their the husbands who sit down and do nothing. There are only two types of wives, the one who submit faithfully to their husbands, lovingly coming beside them to help them in the vision that the Lord has given unto them and the ones who lazily sit down and do nothing or detract from their vision. There are only two types of students, the ones who will work hard, And be faithful to that which God has given to the glory of God and those who will sit down and do nothing. And even as you sit there today, you fall into one of these categories. And I hope you can be honest with yourself to determine which one it is in every area of your life. This is not about working one talent and leaving the others. It's not about you have five talents, you worked two, and then you let the rest of the three and you, dig them up, you dug them up. No. If you were to do that, you would still be unfaithful. Even if you were to work four talents and leave one, you would still be unfaithful. You have to work them all. In every responsibility that you have, in every talent that you have, in every gift that you have, in every opportunity that the Lord has so graciously given to you, you have to be faithful. Verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. After a long time. Honest to focus on those words. After a long time. These ultimate realities are true. There is a judgment of the wicked, there is a rewarding of the righteous. But all of this will happen after a long time. And as we live here on earth, we will also will many a times be, be be faced with realities that seem to oppose this. You know, in, in in Psalms, I think it's Psalm 17, David begins to battle with why the wicked prosper. I think it's 37. One of them, anyway. He begins to battle with the reason of why the wicked prosper and it seems as if the righteous do not prosper. Why it seems like the, the wicked are gaining all of these riches and, 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 and ho- in an unholy way, in an unfaithful way, but the righteous seem to be getting poorer and poorer and poorer. At that moment, David is confronted with this, with this thing of, I understand that God is for the righteous, but it seems as if for this short time, for this long time while we are on earth, sometimes we are put in situations where we see the opposite where we are tempted to live a life that is opposite to these realities because we don't see the manifestation of these ones. We can be tempted to live a life as if God does not exist, as if there will be no judgment because we see everybody else doing it. So after a long time, sort of says to us that we need to be patient in this time. That even as we work our talents, even as we work hard and be faithful with that which God has given unto us, we have to be patient as we do it because it will take time. It will take time. Between now and the coming of Christ, it will take time. Sometimes Christ says it's soon, but it really takes a long time. But I want to encourage you to say that this is not something that only we have experienced. I want you to consider in Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham that he will have a son. How many years did it take before he held that son in his hands? There is a promise that God had given unto him but it took decades before the realization of that consider noah god tells him i'm sending a flood build an ark and i will save you and your family and he had to be faithful and work on the on the on the, on the word of god for hundreds of years building an ark believing that rain will come and he had to be faithful For a long time, even when the sun was shining, when he woke up, he saw no clouds, no sign of rain, no sign of the judgment of God, no sign of anything that God had spoken about. He had to remain faithful to it because he knows that it will take time, even for us in all that we do. Being faithful is not about you're going to be faithful for one day, for a couple of weeks, for a couple of months. Sometimes it will take years, sometimes it will take months, sometimes it will take your entire lifetime before you even see a seed or the fruit of that which the Lord is speaking about in these ultimate realities. But you have to be patient in working the ground that the Lord has given you. You have to be patient. You have to be patient as a husband, as you shepherd your family. You have to be patient as a church member, as you pour your heart out to the church and you don't see it grow as quickly as you ought to or as quickly as you want it to. You have to be patient and continue to work at this ground. Continue to work at it faithfully. Faithfully. Because you know at some time and at some point, whether it be in this life or in the next, the Lord will come, he will settle accounts with everyone. And all of his promises and all the ultimate realities that scripture has given, all the truths that scripture has spoken about, will ultimately be true before us. We have to be faithful. And we have to be patient. Before we go into the other two, I just want us to jump down to verse, um, verse 24 for a moment. I want us to jump down to verse 24 for a moment. And this is what it says He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers that, 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 and at my coming I should, receive, I should have received what was my own with interest. I want you to pay attention to what's happening here. The man who had received the one talent Comes forth towards the Lord and he's, he's judging everyone and he's settling accounts with everyone. And he comes to him and he says, God, I know you. And I was afraid. So because of my fear, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. I want you to pay attention to God's response. God doesn't say, Oh, you were afraid. I understand. It's fine. He doesn't say, oh, I understand your anxieties, I understand your fears, I understand the circumstances weren't necessarily the most favorable for you to do what you were called to do, so it's fine. Still receive and enter into the joy of your master. He looks at his excuse when he says he was afraid and he had all of these different circumstances and all of these different excuses when he came to the Lord and he says to him, "So." You are afraid, but so? So what? Right? And this is a real thing that should come into our hearts. That when we stand before the judgment seat of God and he comes to settle accounts with us, there is no excuse that we can ultimately give to him that will be reason enough for him to forego the judgment that he will give us in that moment. There is nothing that we will come before God In that day where he comes to us and he says, hey, what have you done with what I have given to you? You might have many excuses that you look at in your life and you think are valid. Lord, I wasn't a faithful husband because I was building a business. Lord, I didn't serve in the church because I was busy at work. Lord, I wasn't a faithful student because everybody was having fun and I wanted my fair share. Lord, I didn't do all of these things because I was afraid. All of these excuses that we can think about and we look at and we think we are justified by having them, the Lord will not justify them. There is no excuse, beloved, that we will give to God that will stand on that last day for if for us not going and living in accordance to the responsibilities that he has given unto us. There is no excuse that he will accept for us not being faithful as being husbands, faithful in serving in his church, faithful in being students, being respectful sons and daughters to our parents. All of these things that he has commanded us in his word that we ought to do, there is no excuse that he will look at and accept in that day. There is no amount of fear that we can bring before his feet that he will cause them to turn away and say, Guys, okay, don't, don't, don't harm him. He was afraid. It's okay. That won't happen. There is no excuse for the lack of us being faithful to the Lord in this time. There is no excuse that we can come to him. So I want you to think about all the excuses that you have for why you might not be faithful in whatever area and aspect in your life that you think about. Whether it be in your church life, in your home life, in your work life, in your business life, in every single aspect of your life, in every single talent and responsibility that God has given unto you. I want you to think about every excuse that you've ever given in you to, to, to not doing what you have to do. And I want you today to look at it and say, it's invalid. That that won't stand when you stand before God. That that won't stand. That that won't stand. So I want us to really receive into our hearts the seriousness of this. That there is no excuse that will be accepted. There is nothing that we can say to him that will make God accept our laziness, accept our lack of faithfulness, accept not being and doing the things that he has called us to do. There is no excuse that we can give. Even in the heights of fear, we have to be faithful. And Christ was that example. Do you remember Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane as he looked forward and he saw the wrath of God that was about to be poured out into his life? And he goes to his father and says, Father, if there is any other way, let's do it that way. But ultimately, let your will be done. Even in the face of fear, even in the face of trials and tribulations, even in the face of the biggest Amount of trauma, pain, or anything that any human being had ever experienced or will ever experience, he still remains faithful. And we ought to follow in his example and not accept any excuse for us being lazy, for us being slothful, and for us not working the talents and the being faithful in that which God has given unto us. We have to be faithful. I'm running out of time. Verse 20. Verse 20. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he, and he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your father. Here we see a picture of God faithfully rewarding All those who have been faithful to that which he had given them. All those faithful stewards that he had delivered his talents unto, who ultimately come before him, the Lord says unto him, Well well done, well done, my good and faithful servant. And he says unto them, You have been faithful with little. And because you have been faithful with little, I will set you over much. The parallel, the sort of parallel passage to this is Luke chapter 19. That is also sort of a parable of the talents. And in that, to the faithful servants, the the Lord says that you have been faithful with these 10 talents or these 10 money coins that I have given unto you. And the the Bible says uh, to, to that one who has 10, look, I will give you 10 cities that you will rule over. And the other one who had two, he says, look, I will give you two cities for you to rule over. And what the Lord is trying to say there is that our faithfulness here on earth might be small, but the reward that the Lord will give unto us is not even in comparison to this. Imagine being faithful with a couple with five talents or with two talents and the Lord saying, because you are faithful with that, I will give you 10 cities to rule over. What is the comparison of five talents that you have to be faithful over to 10 cities that you will ultimately rule over as a reward of that? The picture that Christ is trying to paint here is that because you have been faithful in these small things, the reward that I will give you because of that is completely and far beyond expectation for what you will. It, 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 you can't even compare the two. And that's why we also have to live with joyful expectation. We have to live with this joyful expectation. That as we live and work hard and apply ourselves and and, and serve in our churches and become faithful in all of these areas that God has given unto us, we live with faithful expectation knowing that one day God will joyfully reward us for these things. And the reward that we receive by his grace will not be compared to the effort that we put in. It is of grace that God will look at the sinful and tainted efforts that men have even in being faithful and reward them. But that is exactly what he will do. And his reward will be far greater, far more glorious, far more exciting than any other return that you can have here on this earth. And let that give you a joyful expectation. Let that give you some form of comfort in this world even as you do business in a corrupt world, even as you remain faithful in your workplace, in an area that is filled with lazy people, even as you remain faithful as a husband in a world that attacks masculinity and male headship, even in the face of all of these things, you ought to remain joyfully expectant because you know that there is something that the Lord is preparing for those who are faithful and it cannot be compared. It cannot be compared to anything that we can have here on earth. So there is this joyful expectation that should constantly and continuously fill our hearts as we think about that which the Lord is preparing for us. And I want you to think about this, that it is of grace and only of grace for your efforts to be 0.1% and the Lord to reward you 10,000%. That it is only of grace for you to put in effort as a sinful human being making mistakes along the way, but God to reward you as if you have done something I don't even know. But that's what awaits us for being faithful. That's what awaits us for faithfully conducting ourselves in this world in the way that the Lord has called us to do. That's what awaits us. It can't be compared. The two cannot be equated. And that's what caused Paul, who says that we are able to endure these earthly afflictions because they cannot be compared to what we will receive in future and the crown of glory that will be laid upon our heads. So the Lord looks at all of these efforts that they have made. Yes, they they may have made mistakes. Yes, they have done some wrong things. Yes, our efforts are filled with sin sometimes. Yes, we are not perfect even as we walk all of these. But God is faithful and gracious to reward even our efforts that are tainted with sin. So we ought to continue in being faithful And have this fearful and and, and beautiful expectation, joyful expectation that gives us comfort as we live in this world. That the Lord will give unto us a great reward that cannot be compared. Let's then go back to verse 26 and read to the end of our section as we come to a close. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. And cast the worthless servant into utter darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The other side of the coin of joyful expectation is fearful consideration. That even as we wait in patience and we joyfully expect what the Lord will give unto us, There is also a fearful expectation that ought to come onto us that causes us to daily consider if we are being faithful. Because ultimately the punishment or the reward that the Lord gives to unfaithful servants is so devastating. To be cast into utter darkness, to be cast into the depths of hell, to be cast into the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. If this reality is true, then we ought to daily be filled with fearful consideration, daily taking stock in our lives of whether or not we are being faithful. We can't live our lives haphazardly, we can't live our lives in any way we wish, We have to have this fearful consideration that causes us to daily sit down and consider if we are being faithful to God in all that he has given unto us. And I think the scripture that I want to to close with um, today is Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. As Paul encourages those who are in Philippi to continue to resemble Christ in being considerate over one another, in loving one another, and being faithful in the beloved, he says to them, Therefore, my beloved, as you you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence but also in in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. with fear and with trembling. The Christian reality is the balance of both. It's the balance of a joyful expectation of that which the Lord has for us in future, but a fear and a trembling that keeps us faithful. A fear of the judgment and the wrath of God that causes us to daily take into consideration if we truly be saved and that causes us to daily work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We balance both. We are excited of what the Lord is going to give us, but we are fearfully considerate to make sure that we never experience the opposite. It's a balance of both. Lastly, as you sit here, and as you consider everything that the Lord has given unto you, all the talents that the, God, the Lord has given unto you, if your response to this message ultimately is, Yes, Lord, I will go out there and I will do it, then there are either two things that happen. Either one, you have no understanding of the standard of perfection that is required and the level of, 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 of difficulty that doing this requires. Or two, you have overestimated your own abilities. If your response after hearing this is, yes, Lord, I will obey and I will do everything. I will go out there and I will work my butt off and I will do all of this, then you've missed the mark. The response that we as Christians have to every standard that God has given unto us is yes, God fulfilled this in me through Christ. Look at what Paul says immediately after he tells them to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. In verse 13, he says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, to his good pleasure. The response that we should have at the end of this is not one that trusts in ourselves to include and to do all of these things, but is one that goes back to God and says, God, we understand what we have to do in order to live in these according to these ultimate realities, but we trust in you to fulfill these things in our hearts. The standard that God has for us is too high for us to even desire or even begin to attempt on our own. So our response should always be to go back to the feet of Christ, and to ask him as our high priest, to ask him as our God, to ask him as our forerunner, to establish these things in our hearts, to give us the obedience, to give us the strength to give us the ability to do all of these things. so what I ask for you to do as you go out of here is not for you to be excited as if you are able to do all of these things, as you'll be as if you'll be able to be the perfect husband, the perfect employee, the perfect businessman, the perfect student, the perfect son, the perfect father that's not what i'm asking you to do what i'm asking you to do is to continue to trust in god and to continue to prayerfully ask him and beg him that he might establish these things in you even as you work hard in doing them even as you work them out with fear and trembling i want your faith for the success of for your success in all of this to not be based on your abilities but in the faithfulness of god to fulfill this in and through you so before you go out there and work Before you go out there and try, go on your knees and pray and seek the face of God that he might work in you, that you might will and do in accordance to his great pleasure. Go on your knees and ask and beseech him and pray, understanding your own fallenness, understanding your own inabilities, understanding your own sinfulness. Go to him. Ask him. Seek his face. Seek his abilities. Seek for him to do these things through you. And I'm a theology nerd, but that is one of the distinctive differences between classical reformed theology and some of the dispensational theology that we have today. That everything for us, even in all the commandments that God gives, our response is always to prayerfully go to him in faith, asking him to work in us that which he has commanded. I will close in the words that Augustine said as he was considering the heights of the commandments of God. Augustine ultimately says to God that God command what thou wilt, but give what thou commandest. Meaning God command us to do whatever you wish for us to do. You have the right to command us to do whatever you want us to to, to do. But after you give those commandments, give us the heart. Give us the obedience. Give us the strength. Give us the ability to ultimately live in accordance to your commandments. Command what thou wilt and give what thou commandest.